So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the father Satan died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Great, well, thank you for reading for us, Nick. Um, do keep that scripture passage open. We're going to be uh, referring uh, into that, We're going to be diving in and taking a look at, at what Jesus says there. But before we do, let's ask, uh, ask for God's help. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we thank you so much for these words of Jesus Christ. Thank you that, uh, as Peter declares, he has the words of eternal life. And so, Lord, as we uh, consider your word today, we pray that you would uh, stir up that life in our hearts. Help us to uh, believe and feed on Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Marketing. Uh, what is marketing? Well, someone has said this, marketing is the art of selling people what they do not want for money they don't have and making them feel good about it. And now over the years, there have been various high-profile marketing fails, like the new Coke debacle in the 1980s. 
Um, Coke decided to change the recipe, and after pitching this new and improved flavor, Coca-Cola received over 400,000 complaints by phone or mail, and it was not long before they returned to the original formula. Uh, but what I'd suggest is that pales in comparison to what we just read in the Gospel of John. Uh, from a marketing perspective, John chapter 6 must go down as one of history's most epic fails. Uh, look at it this way. At the start of the chapter, Jesus has a strong band of followers. He's drawing a huge crowd as well. Uh, over 5,000 people are willing to get into boats and cross the lake just to hear him speak. Uh, and then he performs this amazing miracle, feeling, feeding all of these people with just a few loaves and a few fish. Uh, they even ended up with more leftovers than they actually started with. Uh, and the next day, the crowds are back. And this miracle serves really as an amazing hook. I mean, you can imagine the ad campaign. Uh, maybe the disciples wore T-shirts. On the front, it said, hungry, question mark. And then on the back was John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And now, when I was in college, I think we may have used those exact T-shirts in an outreach campaign. Uh, but think about how the chapter ends. Uh, firstly, in terms of the crowd, most of the crowd end up leaving confused or even angry. And then if that wasn't enough, Jesus even goes on to lose some of his closest followers. It's like the opposite of the miracle. Uh, he starts out with baskets full of people and ends up with just a handful. Uh, now, our evangelism team is currently thinking about plans for the holidays. Now, imagine this. Imagine this was the outcome of uh, our attempts to reach our community. Uh, rather than bringing anyone in, our outreach strategies actually serve to lose half of our members. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, I don't think Brian Parker is here to defend himself, but we might be looking for a new chair for the team. Uh, seriously, seriously, though, is, isn't this quite astonishing when you look at what happens here? Uh, I mean, does Jesus need to head back to college and, and retake Marketing 101 or something? Uh, well, thankfully, this, this isn't really the point of the text. Like, the point is not that Jesus is not very good at marketing. Uh, but I make this point because I think it highlights something incredibly important that we do see in these verses. Uh, this tells us that the mission of Jesus is not marketing. Uh, Jesus is not interested in selling us something we don't need for money we don't have and, and praise the Lord for that. Uh, nor is that our job as Jesus' followers. As followers of Jesus, our goal is not to please the crowd. Our goal isn't simply to draw people in. Uh, our gospel is not intended simply to be attractive. Uh, John chapter 6 uh, provides really, I would think, a scathing critique of anyone who is interested in promoting uh, an attractional model of discipleship. Now, of course, if our goal isn't to be attractional, if I can coin a phrase, neither is it to be attractional either. We're not interested in just attracting people or attacking them. Uh, we aren't looking to please the crowd. Neither are we interested in putting off the crowd deliberately. Uh, no, this is what we learn in John chapter 6. Our goal as disciples, as those who proclaim Jesus Christ, is to be clear. To be clear. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. He's clear. He's straightforward in presenting the truth. Uh, the foundational truth of the gospel to all of these people. In no uncertain terms, he tells us who he is, and he tells us why he is here. And in that sense, his campaign in John chapter 6 is a huge success because the gospel is presented very, very clearly, never mind the results that it brings. 
uh, as we consider what happens in verses 41 through 71. Uh, why this matters, I think, becomes very evident. Uh, Jesus has just uh, taught this amazing truth that he is the bread of life. Uh, and now in verses 41 through 71, uh, there is this dialogue that continues as Jesus deals with a number of objections about him. Uh, to give you a quick overview of the text, the basic form is that of a dialogue. Uh, I mean, imagine Jesus has just given a lecture and now here he's doing the question and answer session. Uh, there are two main questions. One is there in 42 and one is there in, in verse 52. Uh, and then Jesus gives two main answers in the verses that follow each of those sections. Uh, and then we find there are two groups in play. In verses 41 through 59, Jesus is addressing the Jews, more than likely the leaders of the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, and then in verse 60 and following, the focus shifts. It's like we get a repeat, except this time, Jesus isn't speaking with the Jewish outsiders. No, this time he's addressing the concerns of his own disciples. Uh, there are two questions, there are two answers, and then there are two groups of people. Uh, and taking these things together, I think, it helps us clarify a number of key issues uh, in terms of the main objections to the gospel. Uh, firstly, the two questions tell us what the objections are. Uh, the two questions tell us what the objections are. And secondly, the two answers Jesus gives tell us why, why those objections arise in the first place. And then thirdly, the two groups really answer the question, who? Who is it that has these objections to Jesus? And actually, this third point, I, I feel, is the most surprising, the most shocking. Uh, but let's uh, spend a few moments now trying to work through each of these things. Uh, firstly, what are the objections to Christ? What are the objections to Jesus Christ? Uh, and this is what I want you to see. The two questions that people ask in John 6 are the very same questions that always come up. Uh, these are things, objections, that are indeed universal, uh, no matter where you are or when you are. There are always, without fail, two major issues people seem to have with Christianity. Uh, the first relates to the identity of Jesus Christ, uh, and the second relates to Jesus' mission. Uh, look down at verse 41. Here is the first question. Uh, and so the Jews grumbled about Jesus because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And how do they grumble? Well, they say, verse 42, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And now what's the heart of the objection there? Well, really, it is about the divinity of Jesus. It's about Jesus' claim to be God. I mean, what we see here is this group of people are perfectly happy with this idea that Jesus is just a man, maybe even a special man, a man who's close to God, a man who can do some amazing miracles. But the idea that Jesus is God himself come in the flesh, well, that always causes a problem for people. I mean, I think of the famous cartoon uh, from, uh, from Rome uh, from way back. It's a picture of a donkey hanging on a cross with the tagline, uh, Alexa Menos worships his God. That's what people have always thought of Christianity. And that kind of mockery has continued from theological liberalism in the last century to the present day. I mean, there are countless people, countless podcasts uh, today declaring how foolish it is to believe such things about Jesus. Uh, the idea that God became a man, what a primitive, superstitious thing to believe. Uh, I mean, firstly, we see this group's objecting to the divinity of Christ. But secondly, look at what they say about Jesus' mission. Look at verse 51 with me. Uh, Jesus has just begun to explain what his mission is. Uh, he says, the bread I give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's referring to his death, uh, his death on behalf of his people. 
And he goes on to describe how he came to give his flesh for the life of the world, or, or we could say on behalf of the world. I mean, we need to remember, to give some context here, this is Passover. Jesus is saying these things at Passover. I mean, the idea of someone or something giving their flesh on behalf of someone else is what the whole of Passover is about in the first place. It recalled the sacrifice of a lamb. Uh, By sacrificing a lamb and, and spreading the blood on the doorpost, Israel was spared from that plague, the death of the firstborn. Uh, the lamb gave its flesh uh, for the life of the firstborn son. And, and so here is Jesus now, actually the firstborn son, the only begotten son, saying that he has come to give his life on behalf of the world. Uh, Jesus is talking about his sacrificial death on the cross. That's what his mission is all about. That is how he saves his people. Uh, and yet look at what the people say about this, verse 52. Uh, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so it turns out the second big issue you always find without fail is this. Uh, People have a problem with the cross, uh, with the cross of Jesus. Uh, The idea that Jesus came not primarily to teach or to set an example, but that he came to die, that is just incredibly off-putting for people. I mean, this idea is so incredibly unpopular. Uh, There are various reasons for this, of course. I mean, first, to accept this, you have to accept that you are a sinner. You have to embrace the fact that your sins mean that you deserve to die. And you have to be okay with the fact that God is a God who punishes sinners. And this is exactly what, this is exactly what people uh, love to hate, isn't it? Uh, this idea that God is a God who punishes sin. I mean, this has been a challenge that people have faced all the way back in the Garden of Eden. This idea that God judges sin. I mean, if you eat this, you shall not surely die. That's exactly what the serpent said. I mean, the idea that God would punish sin in such a violent, such a brutal, such a shameful way by crucifying his son on the cross, that's just a form of cosmic child abuse, isn't it? I mean, the cross is always an offense to people. Uh, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. It's always been a stumbling block for both Jews and for Gentiles. And so what do we learn about the nature of objections to Jesus Christ? Well, it's the same two things, always these same two things. It's his divinity and it's his sacrificial death for sinners. These are the two things that always cause a problem for people. And so, if you want to win a huge crowd, if you want to draw the crowd in, what do you need to do? Well, you have to downplay these two things, don't you? You have to downplay the divinity of Christ. And you have to dumb down what you say about his sacrificial death. If only you'll do these two things. If only you'll soften them. If only you'll abandon them completely. Well, we'd be much more effective at winning new Christians, wouldn't we? Uh, But can you see the problem with that? Uh, Can you see why that would never work? Uh, Why that marketing strategy is doomed to fail for believers? Uh, Because it turns out that what offends people most, what they find hardest to believe, what puts people off, are in fact the most central, fundamental, foundational teachings of the gospel. I mean, without the divinity of Christ, there is no Christianity at all. Without his sacrificial death, we're we're just left with some form of either left-wing or right-wing legalism. Without these things, Christianity isn't good news. It's just like everything else, it's bad news. Bad news about trying your best to follow some sort of religious or moral teaching. I mean, without the divinity of Christ, there is no savior at all. And without his sacrificial death, there is no salvation. And so if you want to soft-pedal these things, I'm not sure you're really in the right place with us this morning 
If you'd rather focus on uh, finding hip, attractive people who can rustle up a crowd, uh, well, you might be better off abandoning the Lord Jesus. If you want to win a popularity contest, Christianity probably is not for you. Uh, I'm not saying, of course, we have to be insensitive or brash or harsh with people. Uh, The goal is neither to be attractional or attactional. Remember what I said? Uh, But instead, the aim uh, is to be sensitive, yes, but what's the aim of being sensitive? Well, it's so that we can communicate the gospel sensitively, yes, but also clearly. Uh, And so what are these two questions uh, help us with? Well, they help address the what. What are people's objections to Christ? Well, they're, they're, they're objections to his divinity and his sacrificial death for sinners. Uh, they're objections to the fundamental teachings of Jesus Christ. But let's move on to consider why. Why do these objections present themselves in the first place? Uh, well, this is where Jesus' two answers help. And I have to admit, uh, this is going to be a challenge because what Jesus says takes us into uh, some pretty deep and mysterious territory. Uh, What we discover here are two aspects, two dynamics that are in play. Uh, One has to do with divine sovereignty and the other has to do with human responsibility. Uh, The first reason people object to Christ is this, because God himself has not enabled them to believe. And the second reason they object is this, because although Jesus offers salvation to anyone and everyone, they themselves refuse to come to him. Now, I told you this is heavy stuff. Uh, We're going to uh, struggle to reconcile these things, but we do need to understand this. Jesus does say both of them. Uh, In answer to the first question, he raises the issue of God's work in salvation. Look at verse 43. Uh, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Uh, The reason you don't believe is simply this. It's because you haven't been taught by God. Uh, He hasn't opened your eyes to see. He hasn't opened your ears to hear. He hasn't opened your heart to understand these truths. And so you're spiritually blind, you're spiritually deaf, you're, you're spiritually dull. I mean, it's hard not to see a parallel with the Exodus, isn't it? I mean, these people are grumbling about bread. Uh, they're doing exactly the same thing that the nation of Israel did in the wilderness. And yet there's another parallel too. This reminds us of just a couple of chapters earlier where Jesus is, is in this conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, there is this sense of confusion. Uh, there's a sense that what Jesus says just doesn't connect. When Jesus spoke of being born again, what did Nicodemus say? Well, he said, what do you mean I have to come out of my mother's womb again or something? I mean, similarly, this crowd just don't get it, do they? Uh, When Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh, I mean, he's like, what, do we have to become cannibals? Is that what Christianity is about? I mean, the same dynamic is in play. For them, they just don't understand. And why? Because God needs to draw them. They need to, uh, to have their hearts opened. They need to be born again. Uh, When we speak to people about Christ, we should never forget this. Uh, We are never, ever dealing with neutral observers. When people object to to Christ, it it isn't simply that we aren't explaining things well. Of course, that could be the problem. We need to do our best to be clear. Uh, but, But, of course, no one ever explained the gospel better than Christ himself. Uh, But even as he explains who he is, as he explains why he came, even he could not explain people into his kingdom. Uh, No, they couldn't come without this work of God unless they're drawn by God, unless, as he says later to the disciples, unless it is granted to them. Uh, No, they couldn't come until this gift of faith has been granted. 
I mean, this is a hard teaching, isn't it? It's hard to accept. It's, it's sort of hard to, uh, how to make sense of this with, with people we love, with whom we try to share the gospel. But we shouldn't forget that Jesus balances this truth out with another truth. Uh, actually, he does this in answer to the second question. Uh, when they ask about eating his flesh in verse 52, look at Jesus' answer. In particular, look at how inclusive it is. I mean, consider, as I read this, who salvation is for, according to Jesus. Look at verse 53 with me. Uh, firstly, Jesus makes the point in a negative way. Uh, so, uh, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But then Jesus makes the same point in a converse, more positive way. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And let me read on. And as I do, let me emphasize something. Hopefully you'll spot what it is. For my flesh is true blood and my, and my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, do you see what Jesus says in again and again there? He says this word, whoever. He says, if anyone will eat, if anyone will drink, that person will have eternal life through me. That's the promise of Jesus. It's an offer that is extended to all, isn't it? Even to this very crowd that are going to reject him. And so if people don't come, if they don't believe, if they don't eat, as Jesus puts it, why is that? Well, it's simply because they don't want to. They themselves do not want to embrace the divinity of Jesus Christ. They themselves refuse to trust in him and his sacrificial death on behalf of sinners. We should always hold these two things together, the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, yes, but also the free offer of the gospel to all people. A divine sovereignty, human responsibility, how do they fit? Well, well, I'm not sure I can tell you that. But I can tell you this, that in terms of the mission of Christ and the mission of Christians, understanding these two things really changes everything. On the one hand, it takes the pressure off. It takes the pressure off. What do I mean by that? Well, it means it is not our job to make other people Christians. All we can do is preach Christ. God is the one who opens blind eyes. All we can do is communicate the gospel as clearly and as winsomely as possible. We can't compel people to come. We can't even persuade them to come. They can only come if the Father himself draws them. Which, incidentally, is why we should pray. That's why we should pray that God himself will work. And so that takes the pressure off, doesn't it? It makes it clear, doesn't it, the difference between mission and marketing. But at the same time, I'd suggest it also puts the pressure on. It puts the pressure on in a good way. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, well, look, if the offer is for whoever, whoever will come, whoever will eat, well, it should compel us to share this glorious gospel with all people. That God has not given me some sort of election detector. I can't just kind of use it to scan around the room. I can't just go around and, and see and try and figure out who will respond. I mean, sometimes we feel like we can do this, don't we? We, we think that certain people are probably a little bit closer. Or else we look at other people and we think, well, they uh, just don't have a chance. I mean, uh, I, mean I think if I'd met uh, Tim perhaps, uh, you know, uh, many years ago. 
But we can't do that. That's just not how it works. Uh, we know uh, what the objections will often be to Jesus' uh, divinity. We, we know what the objections will be to his death, but we can't assume we'll know who will respond in which way. Uh, we need to trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is the only one who can save people. Uh, we can't somehow discern who will respond. Uh, we can't write people off. I know Jesus offers the gospel to whomever uh, and God Almighty can draw anyone. And isn't that encouraging? God can even draw you. He can draw me. He drew Tim. He drew many of us to himself. He can turn us from mocking Jesus Christ to, to bowing the knee to him as our Lord and our God. He can move us from jeering at his death to recognizing that it's our only hope uh, for life in eternity. Uh, God is not in the business of marketing. You know, God is in the business of saving sinners. Uh, but before we close, we have to consider this question, who? I mean, remember, in this passage, there are two groups. We've thought about what the objections to Christ are. We've thought about why those objections come. But, but let's answer this question, who? Who is it that objects to Christ in this way? Uh, and, and actually, I think the answer is, is shocking and surprising, isn't it? Uh, because what we learn is this. It isn't only people outside the church who, who object to Christ. It, it turns out that very often people inside the church have big problems with Jesus too. In verses 41 through 49, the focus has been on the crowd. But look down at verse 60, look at who objects now. Verse 60, uh, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And now what saying are they talking about? Well, essentially, it's everything we've already discussed. Uh, but essentially, I think the point is this idea of eating Jesus' flesh on relying on the death of Jesus. I think it includes everything, though. It includes his divinity. It includes his death. It includes even his sovereignty and salvation. It includes this focus on human responsibility. Uh, but this drives home a sobering truth, doesn't it? Uh, opposition can come from a very unlikely place, even amongst professing believers. I mean, this is more than just the 12 apostles, but, but these are his followers, people who walked with him. What we're talking about here are Jesus' inner circle. And it turns out they object to Jesus says. They object to what Jesus says. Now he has presented the gospel so, so clearly. In fact, as we read in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's easy to think this, isn't it? To think, look, we're here in church, so we must be okay. I mean, maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you've been coming to church for a really long time. Maybe you consider yourself a faithful disciple of Jesus. And maybe you're even a, a leader in the church. Uh, but listen, what, what I'm about to say is incredibly important. Uh, what we learn here is there's no such thing as salvation by association. The real question is, have you come to know him? Do you believe in him for yourself? Have you eaten of his flesh? Not, not literally, but spiritually. Now, do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh? And do you personally, for yourself, believe that his death on the cross is the only thing that can save you? Or deep down, do you object to those things in some way? I mean, sure, you like the fellowship, you like the friendship, you like the community, maybe even the music at church, but, but this Jesus stuff, this idea of God becoming man, I mean, this is far-fetched, isn't it? This idea of God dying in our place, I mean, it, it's pretty brutal. Am I really meant to believe this? 
I mean, in the recent past, there's been a whole wave of Christians who, who claim to deconstruct. Maybe you're familiar with this idea, deconstructing. I mean, it's the phrase that people use all the time, isn't it? I mean, they literally pull apart the faith they were raised with. They question everything. And listen, sometimes that's not a bad thing to do, depending on the conclusion it leads to. But it's curious where this ends up, what deconstruction looks like. I mean, you can, can listen to uh, countless podcasts about this. Where does it lead? Well, it, it leads to this. It leads to denying the divinity of Jesus Christ. And what's the second thing it leads to? Well, it leads to denying his sacrificial death on behalf of sinners. It's always, always, always the issue. The same things again and again. And it was the issue in John chapter 6, even amongst professing believers. Uh, This is the issue. These are the hard sayings of Jesus Christ. This idea that Jesus is God. That he's got a right to tell you what to do. Uh, The idea that God judges sin. That he will judge me. That Jesus needs to die in my place. Uh, This idea just seems like terrible medieval nonsense to some people. And you expect me to believe in a God like that. Well, actually, Jesus does. And so we find it's not just those outside the church, but often uh, people seemingly inside the church who reject to the clear teachings of Jesus. What do they object to? They object to his divinity and his death. Why do they object? Well, because of the mystery of God's sovereignty, but also their own responsibility. And who objects? Well, people outside, yes, but often people inside when they're confronted with the clear, straightforward teaching of Jesus. And so what do we make of this huge marketing fail by Jesus Christ in John chapter 6? What do we make of the fact that he starts out with a big band of disciples and a huge crowd and and ends up in this chapter with just a a handful of followers? Well, thankfully, we learn that Christianity is not just a pyramid scheme. It isn't about bringing people in through multi-level marketing. But we learn that what matters most is being clear about the truth, clear about the truth of who Jesus is, clear about why Jesus came, clear about the fact that only God and his power can transform people. Uh, in fact, hopefully we come to the same conclusion as, as Simon Peter in verse 68. I mean, think about this. Uh, Peter, the other apostles, are really on the wrong side of this marketing disaster. Uh, Peter has seen the crowd begin to peel away. Uh, many of his friends and fellow disciples have left. And so what does Jesus ask him? He says, says, Peter, what about you? Do you want to go away as well? I mean, what would you say to that question? In a world that rejects Jesus Christ, perhaps even with many friends who have walked away, do you want to go away as well? What does Peter say? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? I don't care what those people say about you. I don't care why. What is most important is this. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And what matters isn't good marketing, but getting that truth clear in our minds and our hearts. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you so much for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, thank you that even though uh, in uh, John chapter 6 it turned away the crowd and, uh, and it turned away many disciples, it is the only hope for each one of us today. And Lord, thank you for this glorious truth that Jesus Christ came, uh, your eternal Son in the flesh, to give his life on behalf of the world. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would so work in each of our hearts that we would believe this and rejoice in it. But thank you that it is gloriously true. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help each of us to believe it today and to feed on Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.